a trusted voice of truth and light. The narratives that mislead most of us aren't outright lies. They're the deliberate omission of facts that could give us a more complete picture. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. The world needs your leadership, and the essence of leadership is using your influence wisely wherever you happen to be standing. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome to the show. It is time to engage in wrong think, and I'm connecting up with a fellow wrong thinker by the name of Eric Peters from ericpetersautos.com. Hi, Eric. How are you doing today? Well, I'm pretty good. I'm getting ready to strap on my freedom bracelet. How about you? Ah, the freedom bracelet. We we mentioned this. You and I were talking about this before we went on the air, but for, for the sake of our listeners, tell us about uh, the freedom bracelet. Well, it's kind of like the ankle bracelet that the uh, the authorities used to affix to uh, embezzlers and check kiters and people like that as an alternative to actually keeping them in prison. They were sort of allowed to be free-range prisoners um, with a bracelet, making sure that you stayed home or that you uh, only went within a given radius of where you were allowed to go. Well, the Israeli government is doing precisely that, only you don't have to be convicted of anything to get the bracelet. Uh, they're doing this as a uh, carrot-and-stick thing to get people to wear it so that they're allowed to uh, not be locked down or, or to be quarantined and quarantined and to walk around. Uh, and it's, it's, it's pure Orwellian language, once wow. again, freedom bracelet. You know, you and I were talking off the air about uh, straitjackets and how they would pretend, how they would rebrand that maybe as a, a, a hug shirt or something along those lines. You know, Victory Gin from, or- from Orwell in 1984. Right. It's just, it's only to keep you secure and all you have to do is give up all of your freedom sure. and autonomy. It's sure. a bargain. Yeah, you know, it's of a piece. This is just random, but it's kind of related. When you go on Twitter and you try to post something, you get this pop-up that says, you're in charge. Select uh, personalized ads. <laughs> you know, the choice wow. is to get no ads. It's to get the personalized ads, and that may, somehow makes you in charge of the ads that you get. Yeah, it's, it's all wearing a little bit thin. And, and, you know, I have to ask, where, where do you think this is all headed? I, I know uh, you caught, uh, you know, the, the CPAC meeting that took place mm-hmm. over the weekend. Um, you I know, did. this conservative, uh, what is it, conservative, uh, I forget what CPAC stands for now, something action conservative committee? Conservative political action committee. It's okay. kind of a, the, you know, the, the, the entity that ultimately determines who the, uh, <laughs> the next GOP standard bearer is going to be down the road. Um, and on the one hand, it was a very depressing spectacle because you had, there was literally a golden calf there in the image of the orange man. They had a golden orange uh, statue of Trump I saw that, that. They, that they were peddling down the aisle. But then uh, my spirits were lifted by the outstanding speech of South Dakota's governor, Kristi Noem, who actually articulated some, some pro-liberty principles. Um, I, I, was, uh, you know, I was very, very, very heartened by what she had to say. Did you catch her speech? I did. Yep, I caught it after the fact, and uh, and I, I agree. Um, there was a world of difference. You actually had a great column on this that was published yesterday about the principal difference could make all the difference. Yep. And you contrasted, look, Donald Trump was obviously very, very well received, but did he ever really talk about principles, or did he just, you know, give platitudes? Platitudes. He had a knack um, rhetorically for giving a speech that was very vague and nonspecific, that people could read into it whatever they liked. And I found myself doing it as well. For example, he would, he would imply in one way that he didn't like wearing the mask, but then he would take no specific action to do anything about it. So it was, 
it was this duality. If you, you badly want to believe that he's on your side, that he is on the side of freedom, I should say, and then his actions are, are entirely different. And contrast that with Noam, who methodically ticked through and articulated uh, these principles that you and I talk about and that libertarian and conservative people talk about all the time. For example, uh, she talked about how our health is our responsibility and how personal responsibility matters and that it's not the government's job to declare anybody's livelihood essential or non-essential. And she just went through a whole laundry list of those kinds of things and defended it in a way that Trump never did. And she didn't resort to name-calling and bullying, which it might, go, might go over well with people who will support Trump reflexively, but for a lot of people to get turned off by that, it's not necessary, it's gratuitous. She came across as intelligent, principled, and poised, and I, you know, I, I'm just glad to see that, that she and also perhaps Governor DeSantis in Florida might be an alternative to a rerun of the Orange Fail four years from now. I, I loved that uh, you, you spelled out the difference between principles and just, you know, political uh, mishmash. Um, mm-hmm. some, I don't remember where I learned this, but this has always rung true to me. And that is during times of crisis, um, politicians tend to talk about issues, statesmen focus on principles. And, That's right. And, exactly. And the, the difference is principles don't change. Principles apply whether times are good or whether they are bad. You know, they've stood the test of time. They help to keep you on track when you're tempted to take a detour. Whereas, you know, talking issues, that's where people's emotions get uh, really riled up. It's how it's what drives most of, uh, for instance, the conversation on social media. Of course. Uh, and how to how do you effectively combat the left, the Democrats, when you agree with what the left and the Democrats are saying fundamentally? Uh, a good example of that, uh, it was Trump's promise to repeal and replace Obamacare, not to repeal it, not to articulate the principle that the government has no business in a free society telling people that they have to buy anybody's plan. The plan is whatever they want to do, up to themselves. They have the right to make that choice for themselves. Um, that's the sort of thing that Noam talks about, and that's why I'm, I'm, I'm promoting her to the extent that I can. Well, and, and there, there are implications of this even beyond, you know, the, the political realm. Um, you know, when it, when it comes to, to principles, for instance, um, you and I were talking before we went on the air about how uh, the latest uh, author to fall under suspicion of insensitive content is Dr. Seuss. Mm-hmm. He's not even around to defend himself, but six of his books are being uh, taken off the market because his estate or those who manage his estate say, well, they have uh, racially insensitive imagery. Yeah. Well, I'm not surprised by this. Uh, they're really having to scrape the bottom of the barrel in order to find examples of racism, because there really isn't much of it out in the real world. Uh, I haven't been to a cross burning lately. I don't know about you. And I've not seen a sign in the window of a store that says uh, no coloreds or colored entrance or any such thing like that. Um, if anything, there is... Uh, less in the way of barriers to entry to anything uh, than there have ever been in the entire history of this country. Uh, if, you're, uh, if you're a member of a, a minority group, in fact, you're favored in terms of employment and advancement in the country today. So I guess in order to continue to, to get the con, uh, give the con traction and keep it going, they're having to do what's analogous to what they're doing with cars, uh, which is to manufacture a problem, carbon dioxide emissions, because the problem of actual emissions that actually foul the air and cause breathing problems for people was solved 25 years ago, just as the whole thing with, with institutionalized, or what do they call it, systemic racism, hasn't been a problem in this country for decades. So now they have to go, go out and go after Dr. Seuss because of some feigned offense. 
By the way, there was a marvelous article by Annie Holmquist at intellectualtakeout.org, and I think she zeroed in on the problem, and it's not systemic racism. It's systemic victimhood and mm-hmm. everyone who's scrambling to apply that label to themselves for the purpose of gaining power over other people. And it's a tragic thing, really. It's a pathetic thing. It's an insulting thing. If you're a competent and capable person, if you're a responsible person, you don't need that crutch. You know, it's a loser's attitude to say, well, I can't get ahead because everybody's out to get me, and I haven't been handed this, and I haven't been handed that. I think it's a real confession of weakness um, if, if that's the way you want to present yourself to the world. Agreed. Now, in, in the case of, uh, of CPAC, was anything accomplished by that meeting? Well, what was accomplished was uh, giving Noam um, a national spotlight. A lot of people, a lot of people watched that speech live, and because it was such a good speech, it, it kind of uh, it kind of propagated across the the internet and elsewhere. And a lot of people who had never heard of her before and, and had never been aware of the way this uh, woo flu panic has been handled in South Dakota, where uh, there has never been a mandatory mask policy, where businesses were not locked down and shut down. Uh, have looked at that and thought, wow, wow, that's, that's actually sensible. That's actually sane. It's a good thing. And it also provided an, an antidote or an alternative to Trumpism, which, frankly, in my mind, has almost become like this weaponized hysteria. And, and what I mean by that is the people who are still the ardent defenders of him are as unwilling to acknowledge his failings and flaws as the fanatic weaponized hypochondriacs are willing to entertain anything that questions their belief system about the wearing of the masks, the social distancing protocols, and all of the rest of it. It's, it's equally a form of madness, in my opinion. I have to say the best line that I'm aware of that Christy Noam uttered at that, uh, at that, during that speech was she talked about how they had not declared any businesses unessential, and her reasoning mm-hmm. was because, as governor, I don't have the authority to tell your That's business right. that it's unessential. I wanted to That's applaud right. as, as I read those words. Well, and if she didn't state it uh, explicitly, I think she should have, but she implied it. And what, I'm, what I mean by that is that they don't have the moral right to do that. It's not just a legalism that they don't right. have some statute in the books that says you have this power or you don't have that power. It's, you know what, I don't have the right to tell you that you can't earn a living. You have a right to, uh, to freely associate, to offer your, your, your services or your products to people who are free to do business with you if they wish to. And if they don't wish to for whatever reason, they don't like you, they don't like your product, or they're afraid of catching the disease, they don't have to. Nobody's being forced. That is the key thing to hone in on this thing. Nobody's saying that people shouldn't wear masks if they want to. Nobody's saying that if a business owner uh, feels compelled for whatever reason that he wishes to close his doors, that he should be debarred uh, from doing that and forced to keep them open. It's, it's exactly the opposite. It should be people making free choices according this to their own best judgment. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Welcome back to the show. Eric Peters from epautos.com is my guest. We're just talking about freedom stuff, you know, the, what, it, how great it is to be free, as opposed that to heretical thing. That heretical. Th- <laughs> this is wrong think personified, Eric. Yeah. We we tongue in cheek, you know, joked about wrong think, and oh yeah, you have yep. to be a wrong thinker. But uh, more and more, the pressure is on to weed out the wrong thinkers and punish them for you know sure. departing the orthodoxy. 
Yeah, isn't it ironic? You, know, you hear this term diversity banded uh, about a great deal, but people um, of your mind and my mind, people on our side of the fence, are really the most diverse of all because we're willing to entertain uh, other people's opinions and consider them and agree or not and have a civil discussion about it. So we have diversity of intellect, diversity of ideas, whereas the other side seems to have this, this Stalinist idea that everybody has to be exactly the same according to what a small elite decrees to be acceptable uh, with regard to everything. And you're permitted superficial diversity. It's okay to be a different skin color or a different sex, but as long as but the ultimate requirement is you have, to ap- you have to think absolutely the same as everyone else. Yeah, and that stuff gets old. <laughs> it just, gets old. I don't like to march in lockstep. It's not that I'm being a contrarian. It's just I really, truly value that freedom. Well, it's anti-human. Fundamentally, we are all individuals. We all have different life stories. We have different likes, different dislikes, different attitudes. This is part of the human condition. So it is fundamentally inhuman to expect people to conform to a one-size-fits-all mold. And that's exactly what this Stalinist left is attempting to do. There, there are some places where we, we don't often recognize this in our lives. I noticed you had an article titled, Making It Easier. And, and this yeah. really caught my attention in that you were talking about the best way to force something onto people who don't want it is to force what they do want off the market. Let's talk about a couple of things that, uh, where, where that has been the case. Well, that article pivots on a movement that's, uh, that's cropping up in California, not just California, uh, to outlaw not only gas-burning cars but gasoline itself by prohibiting new gas stations from being built from uh, denying the, uh, the right of an existing gas station to build new pumps to increase its capacity and so on and so forth. Um, and, and what it is is an attempt to uh, deny people the, the right to freely exchange goods and services uh, for the sake of these elites who can't stand the fact that these, these people, us, the lowing cattle, have a, a different set of values and a different set of wants and needs than they think everybody should have. They want to force everybody into an electric car into an electric, electricity-only economy, where that's the only form of energy that people are permitted to use, which will give, of course, them absolute control over every aspect of our lives, because energy is intertwined with every aspect of our lives. And, and you know, as often as people gas up their cars, I'm guessing we really don't think much about what it is we're putting in our tanks. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, for instance, you point out to the, the adulterated gasoline Yep. I promise you, Eric, until, I, until you pointed that out, I probably wouldn't have given a second thought to what was going into the tank of my car. But there, there's a reason why it matters. For instance, uh, talk to me about uh, um, ethanol versus, yep. uh, versus unadulterated gasoline. What's, what's the yeah. benefit? What's the downside? Well, there's very little benefit, which is why it had to be forced on the market. There is something called the Renewable Fuel Standard, which is a uh, federal bureaucratic edict that requires a certain quantity of, uh, air quotes now, finger quotes, renewables to be incorporated into the fuel supply. And for that reason, almost all of the gasoline that's commonly available in the United States is, in fact, 90% gas and 10% ethyl alcohol or ethanol, and that's why they call it E10. But it's still marketed as gasoline. Arguably, that's fraudulent. And it didn't happen because people were clamoring for ethanol. Ethanol has less energy than gasoline. Uh, ethanol, ethanol also has some unpleasant side effects, such as a tendency to attract water and in your fuel system is not a good thing. It's more corrosive than gasoline. Uh, your car doesn't go as far on a gallon of E10 as it would on a gallon of pure gasoline. So obviously there are a lot of downsides to this stuff, 
And most people, if given the free choice, would probably not have chosen to buy E10. So naturally, the government gives us practically no choice by pretty much forcing every, every gas station to carry nothing but E10. Well, we have the appearance of choice, though, right? You can choose which pump you want to go to. You can choose, you know, various levels of octane. But, yeah, this is one of those unseen things. It's, it's like the taxes attached to gases. Sure. How many people understand how much of that, uh, that gallon that went into their tank they also paid an extra, what, you know, 50, 60 cents on because Absolutely. government? There would probably be a popular uprising if uh, the, the gas itself were um, advertised at the price of what the gas is, which is right now currently, I don't know, let's think probably about a buck 70 or a buck 80 per gallon. And then when you went to pay for it, you had to pay the 50 plus cents per gallon tax on top of it. That's an outrageous tax. It amounts to, I think, about 25% on average of the cost of a gallon of fuel, which is a punishing and highly regressive tax, to use the progressive's favorite terminology, because most of us have no choice. It's a necessity to buy gas. You have to have it. It's not like cigarettes, which they also apply these punishing taxes on, but you're free to not smoke. It's easy to give up smoking, I guess, uh, whereas it's very, very difficult to give up getting in your car and driving to work if you want to earn a living. Okay, so I know that you keep an eye on these sort of things. What are some of the other areas of our lives maybe we should be keeping a closer eye on because there's, there's some more of that gentle coercion coming at us? Oh, my gosh, it's coming at you from, from practically everywhere. Some of the related things that are going on uh, in California, they have passed um, regulations regarding how you may heat your home going forward. Um, I think new, it's, it's, been, it's been decreed that new home construction cannot have uh, gas lines for uh, you know, gas furnaces and, and gas appliances. They must be electric. And also, I'm pretty sure they have, have, um, have dictated that all new homes must have uh, solar panels put on the roof, regardless of the cost, regardless of the efficiency, regardless of whether the people who are buying the house desire that and would prefer something else. That's one example. There are many others, practically almost anything that you can think of today that, uh, that involves an economic transaction has the, the little grubby fingers of government all over it. We haven't talked a lot about uh, about COVID, but um, mm-hmm. I got I got to take uh, I got to get your your uh, feel on this, Eric. Are are things starting to lighten up, or are we seeing uh, the powers that be double down on keeping us, you know, fearful and under their control? You know, anecdotally, I'll just give you a, a report on the ground from my area. Uh, never has has the enforcement been as lax as it is now. The injunctions to wear the holy rag, the kicking out of people from the stores for refusal to wear the holy rag. But nonetheless, I find that there are more and more people wearing the rag than ever before. I was talking about this with my girlfriend the other day. Um, the last several times that we've gone shopping at our local Kroger, we're the only people in the store who are showing our faces. Everybody wow. else is wearing the holy rag. And, and I don't get that because as far as I can tell, um, they've toned down the rhetoric about the cases, the cases. They've even conceded, or they, they, they've said, conceded isn't the right word, that the cases are down by 50% suddenly now that uh, the bad old orange man is gone and they've got Joe Biden in, in the office in his place. So you'd think they'd calm down a little bit, but apparently not. Now, having said that, I don't sit in front of the TV all day and watch CNN and MSNBC, so I'm not sure what kind of fear <laughs> porn they're peddling to the people who watch it. Uh, we got about a minute here, but i got to share a quick story mm-hmm. with you. My boys and I went to the store yesterday, and, you know, I have a mask with me, but I, I you know, wait to see how vigorously are they going to enforce it. There was nobody yep. there enforcing it, so in we went, maskless. We did our shopping. As we are checking out, I watched a young man walk through the front doors of the store, mask in hand. He was starting to put it on his face. He looked over and saw me and two of my boys mm-hmm. standing there, maskless, 
and his mask went back into his pocket, and on he went to do his shopping. And I went, I feel like I just did something good. <laughs> you did. Now, you know, this is why it is so critically important to, to not put that thing on uh, unless you're under extreme duress and have very little choice because of just the thing that you uh, elaborated a moment ago. By showing your face, you encourage someone else to show theirs, and that sort of thing does propagate and scale. And I think that's one of the ways that we, that we cure sickness, psychosis, and weaponized hypochondria. We've got 30 seconds here. Eric, let's talk about your website. Tell people where they can sure. find it. Well, it's epautos.com, pretty straightforward. And anybody who is interested in uh, libertarian political chat or just wants to uh, find out something interesting about new cars, used cars, classic cars, uh, or motorcycles, we've got lots of that kind of stuff there. We uh, have a nice little back and forth with a, uh, a very erudite, very clever, very interesting group of readers, too, um, who often are more clever and more erudite than I am, and I'm grateful for it. Okay. I am so grateful to have you on the show each week. Thanks again, Eric. You bet, Brian. Talk to you soon. This is The Brian Hyde Show. The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Oh, we have a lot of ground to cover today, so let's jump right back in. You know, it's really common for members of the political class to insist every single program, every policy, every law they create is for the purpose of helping us. We're only here to help you, but sometimes what what they consider help is really not so helpful. Found a great article here. This is from a couple of years ago. It's by Brian Balfour, published on the Foundation for Economic Education. And it's seven things I'd do if I wanted to keep poor people poor. I like that he has a spoiler here. We're already doing these things. (laughs) So here are seven things that uh, keep poor people poor. These are government policies that, that help to make that happen. Number one, an expanding welfare state. Brian Balfour says, for starters, I would advocate for a robust, ever-expanding welfare state programs like Medicaid, food stamps, unemployment insurance, etc. He says, I'd recognize that an effective recipe for keeping poor people poor is to create incentives that push them into decisions that prevent them from climbing out of poverty. Case in point, a 2012 study by Pennsylvania's Secretary of Public Welfare analyzed the decisions confronting individuals and families enrolled in various government welfare programs. Specifically, the study concluded that in the case of a single mother with two children, ages one and four, earning $29,000 a year through work, would be eligible for government benefits, including Medicaid, housing vouchers, subsidized daycare, equivalent to roughly an additional $28,000. Now, such a scenario puts this woman in a bind because if she finds a better job paying more or she picks up more hours, she risks losing substantial amounts of benefits. She would make her family financially worse off even though her paycheck would be bigger. Just to come out even, once taxes are factored in, she would have to find work paying about $69,000 a year 
to compensate for the lost welfare benefits. Not many low-skilled workers can make that kind of a leap. He says this scenario is commonly referred to as the welfare cliff. Confronted with this situation, many individuals understandably opt to continue receiving the government benefits. Rather than help individuals, the perverse economic incentives created by the social safety net trap aid recipients on welfare. The longer they remain out of the workforce or at lower levels of employment, the less employable they become. It's a vicious, self-reinforcing cycle that keeps poor people poor and dependent on the state. By the way, he also points out that there's also the impact the welfare state has on the family unit because welfare programs programs rather break up families by replacing a father's paycheck with a government check and benefits. Nationally, since LBJ's Great Society ratcheted up government welfare programs in the mid-60s, the rate of unmarried births has tripled. Okay, number two, if you want to keep poor people poor, have a progressive taxation policy. Brian Balfour says, if I wanted to keep poor people poor, I would also finance the welfare state poverty trap through punitive taxes on the job and wealth creators of society. The key ingredient to economic growth and thus a higher standard of living for society's poor is through productivity gains made possible by capital investment. High marginal taxes on profitable companies and small businesses alike discourage capital investment. So as businesses decide to expand or either not expand or take their business to more investment-friendly countries, job opportunities dry up. Number three, here's one we're hearing a lot about, increase the minimum wage. Brian Balfour says, if I wanted to keep poor people poor, I would advocate for higher government-enforced minimum wages. The law of supply and demand tells us that the higher the price of a good or service, the less of it will be demanded. Other things held equal, of course. The demand for low-skilled labor is no exception. Higher minimum wage prices will price more and more low-skilled people out of the labor market. Meanwhile, the higher wages will attract more job seekers willing to supply their labor at the higher price. Employers will be able to be more selective in their hiring, and as such, the lower-skilled job seekers will be crowded out of these opportunities by higher-skilled, less-needy candidates. Minimum wage laws are an effective tool to cut the bottom rung off the ladder for those most in need of establishing work experience. By the way, that's one of the most succinct uh, summaries of why minimum wage laws are not a good idea. Definitely something worth keeping in mind should you find yourself in a discussion about, you know, about minimum wage policies. Number four, if you want to keep poor people poor, support restrictive green energy policies. He says, if I wanted to keep poor people poor, I would support government green energy initiatives that make energy more expensive. State and federal incentives or initiatives, rather, that mandate more expensive renewable energy mean, in the words of President Obama, utility bills necessarily skyrocket. Well, poor people just trying to scrape by to, or even just trying to stay even can scarcely afford higher electricity bills. Number five, you want to keep poor people poor? Increase the business regulatory burden. Brian Balfour says, if I wanted to keep poor people poor, I would see to it that government imposes many costly regulations on businesses. Such tight restrictions discourage businesses from starting or expanding, meaning fewer job opportunities for those most in need of opportunity. And mountains of red tape force business to expend scarce resources on compliance costs rather than investing in their businesses and creating jobs. Higher skilled compliance officer jobs will consume payroll that could have potentially gone toward opportunities for lower skilled job seekers. 
Number six, this is one we're all about to get a lesson in. Inflate the money supply. Brian Balfour says, if I wanted to keep poor people poor, I would support quantitative easing policies. Under such programs, the Federal Reserve creates money out of thin air. The inflated money supply then erodes the value of the dollars sitting in your wallet or your bank account. The poor are hardest hit by this inflation because their limited skill set makes it far more difficult for their incomes to keep up with the rising cost of living. And number seven, if I wanted to keep poor people poor, I would impose heavy tariffs on foreign goods in order to limit imports. Brian Balfour says, sure, the domestic industry is protected from competition by these tariffs would prosper, but at what cost? For example, tariffs on foreign steel may help 170,000 American workers employed by the steel industry. But higher steel prices will harm those industries using steel as inputs and the 6.5 million workers they employ. Ultimately, more jobs are likely to be destroyed than saved. Furthermore, he says the price increases passed along to consumers disproportionately harm low-income households. So the combination of fewer job opportunities and a higher cost of living certainly makes it harder for the poor to climb out of poverty. Finally, he says, if I wanted to keep poor people poor, I would most definitely not support a competitive free market economy. As Milton Friedman once famously schooled Phil Donahue, quote, so that the record of history is absolutely clear that there is no alternative way so far discovered of improving the lot of the ordinary people that can hold a candle to the productive activities that are unleashed by a free enterprise system. This is from Brian Balfour. Um, I don't know if he still is the executive vice president of Civitas Institute, but um, an, an awesome article. This one published back in uh, August of 2018. Seven things I'd do if I wanted to keep poor people poor. Now, I know you and I don't have a tremendous amount of influence over monetary policy. We don't sit down for those regular meetings with the Fed or with Congress. But there are certainly things you and I could be doing to uh, hedge our bets and to, to make sure that we have you know, our, our, our money diversified. It's not all sitting in a bank account or a retirement account. And you know, I, I know what I'm suggesting for some people is probably borderline you know, tinfoil hat territory. But can we just agree that uh, fiat currencies, such as the one that we are currently using, have a tendency to inflate and collapse and... They, they don't last forever. So, best thing you can do, don't be dependent on government. Don't be dependent upon subsidies of any kind. If, you have, uh, if your skill set is lacking, this is the time to, to learn to pick up some skills. Get those skills in self-reliance. And by the way, self-reliance doesn't mean, well, I've got to drop everything and I've got to go to college now and I've got to take out you know tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of dollars in student loans. No, you don't. And I'll just give you one example of some of the different alternatives. Um, the church I belong to happens to teach self-reliance classes. These are not charged. You know, There's no cost associated with them. But uh, they are different uh, aspects of self-reliance. Everything from how to, uh, how to start or how to improve a business that you're starting. And it's, it's targeted towards a small business owner. It's not like, you know, how to build a multinational corporation. How to get yourself out of debt. I, I thought this was a good one, too. How to build emotional resilience. I think that's something that we could all benefit from. But, but my point is simply this. 
recognize the policies that are being done that don't really improve people's standing in life. It doesn't improve their their quality of life. It doesn't improve their standard of living. It does give a lot of security to various bureaucrats and, you know, paper pushers at various levels and politicians, of course, who are more than happy to take credit for it. This is a very bad time to be dependent on Uncle Sugar for your sustenance. Anything I can do to help? Please let me know. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. By the way, I want to throw a quick shout out to my sponsors. They include Landmark Risk Management and Insurance, also Monticello College. And Heather Turner at Patriot Home Mortgage. I would encourage you to go to the show notes and you can uh, find contact links right there at the show notes at Brian Hyde, the Brian Hyde Show.com. Sorry, that was that was supposed to be much more clear. The Brian Hyde Show.com. You can subscribe to the podcast there. You can even consider supporting this uh, program by becoming a patron. I've got a small but growing number of people who do this, whether it's a dollar a month, whether it's $5 or $10 a month. I just, I want to tell you, because of people like that, I can focus my time more exclusively on finding and then sharing with you the best content that helps you uh, to better understand the world around us, better understand what you can be doing to improve your situation and isn't so based in, you know, red versus blue slogans being shouted back and forth. Hopefully that's a difference you can appreciate. I'm guessing you wouldn't be here unless you understood that difference. So during times such as these, being a wrong thinker is, it's a necessity, at least for anybody who's serious about maintaining his or her autonomy. I don't know why, but that is, that is a revolutionary act, and it's becoming more so with every single passing day. Jeff Minnick has a great article on intellectualtakeout.org, Thinking Free While Living with the Establishment. And I love that he's coming at this from, from a position of experience. He says, this week I celebrated my 70th birthday. Now he says, I like the sound of 70. In terms of human years, that number seems possessed of dignity and wisdom. And he says, although I may lack both attributes, 70 provides a facade leading others to think that age has endowed me with these prizes. Regardless, he says, I have reached the age when bits and pieces of the past come floating up from the subconscious like messages from a magic eight ball. Shards and splinters from the past drift into my mind, bidden or unbidden, which are often entertaining and sometimes applicable to the present. One recent bit of this sort of debris that washed up on shore this week were lines from the 1969 Moody Blues song, In the Beginning. Now he says, some of the lines from this spoken song have remained stuck in my head all these years. And I was absentmindedly reciting the parts I remembered when I realized the words touched on current affairs. And this is the excerpt from the song that, that he wanted you to consider. The first one is a man saying, I think. I think I am, therefore I am. I think. And the establishment responds, of course you are my bright little star. I've miles and miles of files, pretty files of your forefather's fruit. And now, to suit our great computer, your magnetic ink. And the man responds, I'm more than that. I know I am. At least I think I must be. 
And then the inner man says, there you go, man. Keep as cool as you can. Face piles and piles of trials with smiles. It riles them to believe that you perceive the web they weave and keep on thinking free. Now, Jeff Minnick says the words that had stuck with me were those of the inner man. But he says, as I looked at the full lyrics of In the Beginning, I found the entire piece pertinent to our time, perhaps even more so than when Graham Edge wrote it. In Establishment, we see a government that has miles and miles of files on us, and the idea of a great computer that makes us magnetic ink. Written half a century ago, this describes what big tech, big government, and the mainstream media are attempting today. The same conglomerate also treats the rest of us like children, bright little stars who should be pleased with an occasional pat on the head. First Man echoes the doubts that our roiled age of division and gibberish have cast on the meaning of our humanity. The theories regarding our personhood emanating from social justice advocates and some of the folks staffing our universities, ideas that our grandparents would have considered insane, have left many confused about the nature of reality and truth. Inner Man offers us some way out of this madhouse or at least some relief from the walls and bars some are trying to build around us. It does rile them to believe that you perceive the web they weave. Jeff Minnick says we see this anger daily among those who wish to command our lives. Outfits like Facebook and Twitter banish certain points of view from their platforms, labeling them as dangerous or hate speech. Some on the left want to shut down or censor organizations like Fox News or Newsmax simply because some of their reporting and editorials address the lies and distortions of politicians. It angers them, too, when we keep on thinking free, living our lives and practicing our faith and beliefs outside of their control. Now, unfortunately for those who would be our masters, more and more people are waking up to what their keepers intend for them. They see the spider's web being woven, what we today would call the matrix. And they understand the motives behind such postmodern ideas as systemic racism, cancer, cancel culture, eh, same thing, cancer, and uh, deconstruction. They see how these notions, when put into action, damage our schools, threaten free speech, increase crime and violence in our cities, and deliberately aim at creating groupings based on skin pigmentation, promoting division rather than unity. In his first five weeks in the White House, Joe Biden issued a combination of more than 60 executive orders, directives, and memorandum. Simply from the sheer volume of these missives, we know that the president had little or no hand in writing them, and we're left to wonder whether he even read them or knew what he was signing. But Jeff Minnick reminds us, some of us have our eyes open and we see what they are doing. Let's keep them riled by thinking free and helping others to do the same. Amen, bro. I, I am so on board with what he is advocating here. And I would encourage you, likewise, this is the time to, to really contemplate what matters most to you. And it better be something more than just simply, I must get stuff and keep up with the Joneses. There's more to life than simply keeping up with the Joneses. There's more to life than simply acquiring material things or honors or status. I hearken back to some of the, the earlier essays I read from uh, Paul Rosenberg over the years. And, and if you haven't subscribed to uh, freemansperspective.com, Paul sends out a weekly email. Sometimes you get a couple of emails, but there are years of phenomenal short essays that, uh, that just have just enough of a different perspective, just a couple of steps one direction or the other that give you a whole different understanding of what's going on. One of the things that Paul warns about, and I think rightly so, 
is he warns about the dangers of seeking status. And you see this in politics. I mean, come on, this is, this is, politicians are all about status. Well, don't you know who I am? And look at this title. Look at this committee that I sit on. Look at the policy that I help to push through. Look at the power that I wield. And unfortunately, for some reason, we, the people, the source of their political power, have a tendency to indulge that lust for, for status. And we give politicians a status they don't really deserve. I don't know why we do it. Maybe it's because we, we feel like, well, I'm associated with it. I'm on the team. I'm, I'm part of something important. I don't know. I do know this. Status makes you compare yourself with other people compulsively. You're either looking for reasons to uh, affirm that, yes, I'm better than them, or you're looking for reasons to confirm that, yep, they are better than me. Either, either which way of thinking is, is very, very destructive. And, and you see this also with the, the virtue signaling. Oh, my goodness. In woke culture, that's, I don't know what's worse. You know, someone threatening me and, and, and telling me, you have to do what I say because I'm a victim and, and you should feel guilty, so you should give me power over you. That's bad enough. But it's even worse when, when someone is insisting that you stop being a good person for, for the sake of being a good person. In other words, when it's just a virtue signal. I'm telling you what I'm all about and who I'm against and what I'm against. But that's a really cheap substitute for actually being a decent person. So I understand what I'm advocating here is harder than simply I'm going to make a post on social media and I'm going to show everybody how woke I am and how you know free thinking I am and make sure they understand I'm not part of the problem. If you have to give up your autonomy in order to gain the acceptance or the approval of uh, these commissars, you haven't gained anything. You've, you've lost what was most important. Just being against something isn't what makes you a good person. You've got to actually live the life that a good person would live, serving people around you, treating other people as you would be treated, magnifying whatever God has given you in, in an effort to, uh, to bless the world and the people around you. I know it sounds lofty, but I think that's, that's really where happiness comes from. And it's work. It couldn't be otherwise. I mean, there's, there's no shortcut. There's no, no simple high road that you can take. Okay, now you're a good person. It comes down to you've got to be willing to actually walk the walk and not just talk the talk. I think if there was one huge single disagreement I have with the whole woke culture... It's that you have a lot of people pretending to be good people by virtue signaling, this is what I'm against, as opposed to actually being good people by treating other people with decency and respect. All right. I feel like I'm ranting, but that still felt like a pretty good rant. This is The Brian Hyde Show.